and end at the same place as the last slide. So we're still starting by reading the text, and after we do some work, we're going to get to uh, how does this passage apply to me, how does it apply to us, how does it apply to a non-believer. However, we don't take the shortcut of reading and then just immediately asking how does this apply to me, um, because we know this can lead to pitfalls, which I'm going to demonstrate very soon. So first, we want to ask ourselves, what is the context? After we read the text, we want to ask ourselves, what is the context? What did this mean to the original audience? How did this apply to the original audience in their time? And you'll notice I put on the arrows up there the tools that we've already learned in the class help us like follow this roadmap. Um, so contextualization, genre, and authorial intent help us understand what this text would have meant to its original audience help us understand the context. Then we want to ask ourselves, how does Christ impact this text? So this is the biblical theology lesson that Nick taught last week. Uh, where do we see Christ in the text? How does the cross and our need for a spotless savior impact our understanding of this text? And we use biblical theology to do that. Then finally, we ask ourselves, in light of those two things, what does this text mean? to me? What does this text mean to us? How does it apply to my life? How does it apply to our lives? And we want to do that, that final step, using the tools we learned in those first couple weeks. So a heart posture of humility and thankfulness, the goal of encountering God in his word, and submitting to it. So this, admittedly, is a lot, um, and I know this can look overwhelming, uh, but the more that you go through these steps, the more this just kind of becomes second nature and something that you do um, as you read the text. Uh, and I'm going to put forth that it is worth doing. Uh, and so the, the majority of the class this morning, we're going to spend walking through a couple texts using this roadmap uh, and using Paul's application questions, which we'll get to in just a second. Um, so let me try to prove to you why this is worth doing um, over just asking yourself immediately, how does this apply to me? So if you would, open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 17. Um, and just a quick note on this handout. Most of like the teaching stuff is on the front page, and then in the middle part are the case studies. So I know I'm skipping section two, but we're going to come back to it. And if you want to take notes on 1 Samuel 17, it's in the middle of the, the handout there. Uh, but yeah, please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 17. Uh, this is the very familiar story of David and Goliath. I would guess most of us in the room, even if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, kind of know the, the structure and the story of David and Goliath. I mean, this is very uh, ingrained in our culture. Um, so we have this hero, David. He challenges a, a scary, much bigger-looking opponent, Goliath. Uh, even when the people, his people, Israel, they hang back, they're terrified. And David is fearless, and you can tell that in the story, uh, because he knows the Lord is on his side. He knows the Lord is on Israel's side. He trusts the Lord. And he kills the giant with a sling and some stones. So in my opinion, I think we have to read probably the coolest part of the story together. Um, so could somebody read for us 1 Samuel 17, 45 to 47? And I put it up on the screen there as well. But could somebody read that for us?
Thanks. I mean, that's awesome. You know, imagine looking up at somebody twice your height, like Andrew Nunn. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he's got a sword longer than you are tall, and you've got a sling and some stones, and you say that to him. The Lord is going to give you into my hand. That's awesome faith. So let's walk through the application of 1 Samuel 17. If we do what most people do, we read the text, and then we ask how it applies to us, uh, we can come to a lot of different conclusions. Some of them are faithful conclusions. Some of them are not so faithful. Um, Again, maybe if we know our Bibles really well, we can come away with a faithful conclusion, but maybe not. So many sermons... Uh, have been preached on this text with this major application as the application of the sermon. Be like David. Slay your giants. Slay your own giants in your life. Trust the Lord. Watch the great things he'll do if you just have faith like David. Many of us, if we're honest, like to read ourselves as the hero of a story. And so we see David, and we like to read ourselves as the hero of that story. We like to read ourselves as the hero of any story. We want to be like the hero. Now, of course, it is not a bad thing to want to be like David. It's a really good thing. But it misses the main point of the text if we apply it this way. So instead, we're going to work through um, that application roadmap. Whoops, there we go. uh, This more difficult framework and come to a more faithful application than be like David. Um, Trust the Lord and slay your giants. So first, we're just going to walk through this together. Um, We're going to ask ourselves, what's the context? How did this apply to the original audience? Does anybody want to give any input on this? So who are the audience of 1 Samuel? What's kind of the, where is Israel at in their history in this story? Thanks, Jeremy. I don't know how long that was off, but I'm sorry. (laughs) Uh, Could somebody give us some input on where are we at in the history of Israel in 1 Samuel 17? Um, Yeah, What, what might this have meant to the original audience? Yeah, absolutely. So this would absolutely be an encouragement to Israel that they have a king like David. Any other tidbits? Yep. Yep, you're right. Um, so, yeah, in this story, Saul is, is still technically the king of Israel. Um, and, uh, yeah, he's absolutely not leading the people um, like he should. So this is a, a history. It's a narrative. You know, we talked about genre. This is just a history chronicling kind of the rise of the kings after the time of the judges um, in Jewish history. So if you remember the people, they kind of begged the Lord for a king like the nations, which is a yikes. They looked around at the nations alike the, uh, around them, and they said, we want to be like those nations, um, so give us a king. Um, and the Lord answered that. In Saul. So Saul is now failing at this point in the narrative. He's already been rejected as king by the Lord two chapters earlier in 1 Samuel 15. And we're starting to kind of even see why that might be the case. 
Um, his people are camped out. Goliath and the Philistine army are challenging Israel uh, and Saul and absolutely insulting the Lord on the battlefield. I mean, the things Goliath is saying about God are awful. So who should have been the one to go and fight Goliath? Yeah. Saul should be out there. Saul is Israel's king, and where is he when someone challenges their God? He's hiding. Uh, he refuses to get up. Earlier in 1 Samuel 17, he's described as terrified along with his people. So the people and their king are terrified of Goliath and the Philistine army. So Israel needs a king, a real king. That's a huge piece of the literary context of this passage. They need a true king one who isn't afraid of Goliath, one who isn't afraid of his army, one who will fight for them, knowing that however the battle looks, Israel is God's people, and they have God on their side. So into that context steps David. David enters the picture as one who actually does trust God, who will actually fight Israel's literally giant enemy. Uh, David looks small compared to Goliath, but he knows how big God is compared to Goliath. And so there's a bit of where we're at in Scripture uh, and what the original audience would be reading this for. They would know Israel needs a true king because where they're at in the story, they're scared. They can't conquer their own enemies. Um, they're hiding. So now let's ask ourselves as we go through this. I'm going to have to keep checking, make sure I don't disconnect. Um, how does Christ impact this text? Um, so using the tools Nick laid out last week, since we know all Scripture is ultimately about Jesus, that's what he tells us. Where do we see Jesus in this text? How does our understanding of who he is impact our reading of the text? Yep. Yep. So David is a type of Christ. Um, so David foreshadows the Christ to come. Uh, Jesus is the culmination of David. He's the better David. Uh, was David a perfect king? In this story, it kind of looks like it. But we know later in his kingdom, absolutely not. Right? He commits adultery. He commits murder. Um, he's certainly a repentant king. That's why you find out he's a man after God's own heart. But he's nowhere near a perfect king. And so this story and David in this story are pointing us forward to the king that Israel really needs, uh, to the king that will finally crush the enemies of God's people. Uh, even little details in the text point to this. Um, so little details point back to Genesis, and they point forward to Christ. So if you look with me at verse 5 of 1 Samuel 17, um, the CSB and the NIV include this little detail. The ESV doesn't. Uh, but the CSB says this, it says, Goliath wore a bronze helmet and bronze scale armor that weighed 125 pounds. So you may have just skipped over that verse when you're reading 1 Samuel 17, but what was Goliath's armor made out of? Yeah, bronze, scale, bronze scale armor. So what, is, what does that remind you of, scales? Yeah, the serpent in Genesis. Um, Goliath represents the serpent the enemy of all God's people, Satan. Genesis 3.15 then prophesies to us of the one who will eventually crush the serpent's head. Uh, and here David crushes the head of Goliath, the serpent. 
It's a wonderfully, divinely ordained image of an even greater battle, an even greater crushing to come when Christ will finally crush Satan's head and the enemy of God's people is finally dead. Do you see how much more glorious this passage is when you kind of take these extra steps and work through them? How much richer, how much sweeter is this passage when we consider the original audience and we think about Jesus fulfilling it ultimately? And how much more would it be so with every other passage of Scripture that you're going to read and apply? So now we can finally ask ourselves, how does this apply to us today? So in case you haven't picked up on it yet, it's not the most faithful thing to read yourself as David in the story. Um, that role clearly belongs to Christ. You can want to be like David. That's a really good thing because ultimately you're just wanting to be like Christ, which is a really good thing. But if we're going to assign ourselves a role here in this text, it is more faithful to assign us the role of God's people, scared of Goliath, unable to come out against him on our own, hiding, desperately needing a hero and a king to fight for us, to save us, to crush our enemy. If you remember, we talked about 2 Timothy 3 briefly last time I taught, and uh, it's up there now. Um, and we talked about how Paul would have us apply the Bible, the different categories of how we should apply. Um, so what categories in these verses on the screen does Paul say Scripture is, you can apply it in these ways? And you can just cheat and look at your handout if you want to. Yep, <laughs> yeah, teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. He says, all of Scripture is profitable for these things, teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. So along with that roadmap of how do we get to an application, we can then ask these questions, which we know are faithful because Paul says, this is how you apply the Bible. It applies in these ways. All of it applies in these ways. Um, so after we know what it meant to the original audience, how Christ impacts our understanding of the text, we can then ask these questions of the text and know that we're asking ourselves questions that are true of any biblical text that we're going to read. So in these questions, uh, just real quick, one thing I want to address is what's the difference between reproof and correction? Um, so reproof, think, think of that as more negative, like rebuke. Um, and correction, think of it as more positive, like sharpening something that you already uh, believe or know. Okay, so let's walk through these questions with an eye on 1 Samuel and on David and Goliath. So first, teaching. What is being taught here? How can we be instructed by this passage of Scripture? What's being taught? Yeah, yeah, certainly there's, there's threats to God's people. What else is being taught here? Yeah, God uses weak people to accomplish his will. Definitely. What about our need? Um, we need a king that fights for us as God's people. We need a king who isn't scared, who perfectly trusts the Lord, I think also just the reality of our enemy, so like what you were getting at, um, 
the reality of Satan, like we shouldn't take Satan lightly. He's a very real enemy. He looks really intimidating. Uh, and we can take infinite comfort that our God is infinitely bigger, that Christ is infinitely stronger. Uh, but we do have a, a real enemy. Okay, what about reproof? How can we be rebuked by this passage? How might you, in understanding this passage, be rebuked by it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's really sometimes the things we want aren't the things we need. Um, I think even in the character of Christ, he might not look like the king you expect uh, in your life, and yet he is king. Um, so this is a bit more individual, but maybe you need to be rebuked in how you trust the Savior King. Uh, maybe you aren't very thankful for what he's done for his people. Uh, so I, I think one faithful application of this passage is to rejoice. Christians can rejoice that the king has come in Jesus. Uh, we have actually seen this king come and fight for us on the cross. We don't have to fight Goliath. We don't have to face Satan. Christ has done it in his sacrificial death for us, and he'll come back to finally do it very soon. So one way you can embrace this rebuke is to rejoice more. Rejoice in Christ. Rejoice in knowing Christ. Rejoice in being saved from your ultimate enemies. Okay, what about correction? How can our thinking about God be sharpened by what we've read in this passage? Yeah, we don't have to be fearful, finally. Um, Christ will defeat Satan. So, yeah, maybe you don't see how definitively Jesus defeats our enemies. Uh, this could be a point of sharpening. Maybe you don't think the devil presents much of a threat to you without Jesus, uh, but he does. Without Christ, we are done for. Um, that could be a point of sharpening. Maybe you've always read yourself as David. Uh, that could be a point of correction, of sharpening. Okay, finally, what about training in righteousness? So all scripture is meant to lead us to live holy lives. How does this passage train us for righteousness? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So being ready. Yeah, I think this is the hardest question to answer with this passage. Um, but I think there are a lot of applications in how this trains us for righteousness. So for me personally, I think the fact that Satan is ultimately going to be defeated and Christ is ultimately going to be victori victorious encourages me that I don't actually have to give in to sin. Um, so that's how I think this passage trains me for righteousness. As much as I'm one of kind of the scared Israelites in the background, by Christ's blood, I'm actually not a Philistine. I'm not part of that army. I don't have to act like a Philistine uh, because I'm not one. So when sin and temptation crouches at the door, I know that my king is David, not Goliath. My king is Jesus, not Satan. 
So I don't have to act like I'm in Satan's forces. Jesus has actually given me the ability to act like a child of God. Christ frees me to flee from sin. And there's a, a bunch of other ways that we can apply this to train us, ourselves for righteousness. And then finally, as you walk through these questions um, in this roadmap, uh, I'd want to encourage you to think not just about yourself, but about those around you, um, about your brothers and sisters in Christ, and about non-believers. And if I was going to just give you three, there's a bunch of different buckets you could use for application. I think the three like big buckets are, how does this apply to me? How does this apply to us uh, as a church, as brothers and sisters in Christ? And how does this apply to them or to the non-believer? Um, so I think we have a tendency to just ask about ourselves. Uh, but you'll notice when I went through these questions, I intentionally asked we instead of you. Uh, because it's not just about you, it's about us. Um, so instead of doing all of this work, and we've done some work, and then just asking ourselves, how does this apply to me? We should continue to ask, how does this apply to fellow believers around us? And how does this apply to non-believers? So we've already done the heavy lifting on the passage, so to speak. Uh, so it shouldn't be hard to go from the work we've already done to apply this passage faithfully to our brothers and sisters and to non-believers around us. So the greater David's victory was for all his people. It wasn't just for you individually, it was for you, but it was for all his people. Um, and we exist in a unique community of those people in this church. So we as a people share in our king's victory, um, which is very encouraging and good application. Um, what about as we think about non-believers? How would we apply this passage to non-believers? Where does this maybe challenge them to repent, to turn away from sin? How does this apply to a non-believer? Yeah. Yeah, so the Yeah. So what Jacob's saying is the harsh reality of this passage is uh, the non-believer if we find the believer as Israel's scared people, the sad harsh reality is the Philistine army is where we find the non-believer right now. Uh, and it, it is a warning that if you don't repent, uh, as David says, um, this very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals. Um, it, it is a harsh reality um, that a non-believer will face hell apart from Christ. Um, and, and heartbreakingly, a lot of those in the Philistine army follow their leader, right, Goliath. But what's so great about Christ is not only did he defeat the greater Goliath, but he also provided the way for those in the Philistine army to come join God's people um, in the Israelite army. So because Christ isn't back yet and the final judgment isn't here, the way is still open for non-believers to come to Christ. Um, and so ultimately, non-believers will be crushed, but not yet. And so we need to be people who beg with those around us who are in this Philistine army, come join us, come join God's people, come to the better king, He's much better than Goliath. So I'm sure many of you already knew all this stuff uh, about David and Goliath, which is great. 
Uh, what I'm trying to show you, again, it's not revolutionary, but it is repeatable. It's a framework you can take and work through on biblical texts, um, and it works. So pairing together all these tools that we've learned. <laughs> I'm lost. There we go. All these tools that we've learned, uh, along with Paul's application questions, leads to faithful applications, and it leads to a lot of faithful applications, not just one. So when you just skim a story or skim a passage of Scripture, you certainly don't come away with the amount of applications and the amount of faithful applications that we're going to walk away with uh, in this story. So that's a good example uh, of a narrative application. And one final just encouragement for me on narratives um, and applications, especially those in the Old Testament, it is so, so easy to want to read ourselves as Abraham, as Moses, as David, as Joseph. Uh, we want to read ourselves as those people. And I would just really caution you against doing that. Um, again, it's fine to want to be like those people. Um, but if we're honest with ourselves, we are very rarely the hero uh, in the biblical text. Um, yeah, just be careful not to think too highly of yourself and read yourself as the Christ figure if that's where Christ belongs in the passage. So again, okay to want to be like that person, but recognize uh, you're not Christ in the passages you read. So let's turn to another passage that's not a narrative, and we're just going to do this same thing over again. So you're going to get two different genres, two different let's work through the roadmap and the questions, uh, and we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 13 if you want to. Go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 13. Okay, uh, I'm going to read all of 1 Corinthians 13. Um, if you're not there, it is up on the slide as well. It says this, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong, or a clanging symbol. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Okay, let's turn to our application roadmap um, to walk us through this, and then we'll turn to Paul's application questions. Um, so just to start, 
Where do you usually hear 1 Corinthians 13 taught? Mm -hmm. Yep, weddings. Very common at weddings. Um, and if we take the application that most people do at the Bible, uh, that makes sense. We read a passage here about love, think, hey, I know where I see love, marriage. And so we read it at, at our weddings. Uh, and guess what? It's not a bad thing to read at weddings. It's okay if you read it at your wedding. You're still married. Um, but, so don't hear me wrong, uh, but is it the point of what Paul is saying in the text? Um, was it meant to be read at the Corinthian church's weddings? Uh, let's walk through a faithful application and find out. So the first thing we need to do, the first thing we ask ourselves is what's the context? What did this mean to the original audience? So can anybody help us out? What was going on in Corinth? Uh, what might, why was Paul writing this letter in the first place? Yeah. That's, yes, very true. Between chapter 12 and chapter 14. That's great context, yeah. What's a major theme of 1 Corinthians? What'd you say? Yes, division, fighting, uh, just a lot of sinfulness in the Corinthian church. You find out really quickly this church is pretty messed up. First um, Corinthians is a letter. Paul writes to the church in Corinth to address a lot of the concerns. Um, and again, we talked about this the last time that I taught, but you don't even have to Google that to find it out. If you just read First Corinthians, you're going to find out pretty quick. Uh, this church is messed up. There's a lot of issues. Chapter one, you find out there's serious divisions in the church. Chapter three, you find out the church isn't growing in knowledge. They aren't ready for serious spiritual matters. They need spiritual milk still. Uh, chapter 5, you find out sexual immorality is rampant in the church, and it's so serious that it's the kind of sexual immorality that the world around the church wouldn't tolerate, and yet they're tolerating it in their church. They're just letting it continue. Uh, so we could go on, but there are serious problems in Corinth. There's serious problems in this church. So when we come to 1 Corinthians 13, knowing that this church has serious divisions and serious issues, understanding basic Christian concepts, what is 1 Corinthians 13 to the church in Corinth? A peacemaker? What do you mean by that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it, he's trying to make peace by saying, by rebuking them. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13 is a rebuke to the church at Corinth. Guys, you're not like this. Uh, love is like this, and you're not, and you need to make peace by being like this. Uh, we can even see this directly. So verse 4 of chapter 13, we find out love is not arrogant. Now, if you keep a finger there and flip over to chapter 5, verse 2, uh, but keep your place in 1 Corinthians 13. So love is not arrogant, it says. And then chapter 5, verse 2, Paul says to the church about this immorality problem that they're having, and you are arrogant. Love is not arrogant. You are arrogant. Paul is directly rebuking the Corinthian church here for their lack of love. This isn't Paul being lovey-dovey. This is Paul with a scalpel, cutting away at the misconceptions and divisions within the Corinthian church. So when Paul says love is patient, love is kind, he wants the Corinthians to hear, and you aren't these things. You need to be these things. 
act like this because you're not doing it right now. So here Paul is rebuking the Corinthian church. That's what it meant to the original audience. This passage didn't make them feel good. It hurt them to read it. And Paul wanted it to so that they would repent and act like this, act like what love is really like. Okay, so that's some of the context. Now let's use biblical theology and ask ourselves, how does Christ relate to this text? So where do we see Christ in this text? How does he relate to it? Yeah, Christ is this chapter embodied. Um, He is the example of living this out. So in opposition to the Corinthians, Jesus is their example and their rebuke in bodily form. Uh, You can replace the word love in a lot of these with Jesus uh, and quickly realize he is who Paul is talking about. So when he says, you know, love is patient, love is kind, Jesus is patient. We know this. How patient is Jesus? How many times have you sinned and Jesus has welcomed you back and paid for that sin on the cross, forgiven you? Jesus is kind. How kind is Jesus? Who else would die for sinners to reconcile us to God, right? Rarely would somebody die for a righteous person, yet Christ died for us when we were still blind in our sin. What kindness. Christ is also the reason that verse 8, love never ends. It will never end for those who are in Christ because he's purchased eternity for us. He's the reason, verse 12, that now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, now in part, then fully. That's wonderful. Okay, so we know what it meant to the original audience. We know how Christ impacts our understanding of the passage. So now we get to move on uh, to Paul's application questions and ask, how does this apply? So first, teaching. What is being taught here? Is there a doctrine we need to be taught? Y'all didn't realize you signed up for such an interactive class this morning. (laughs) What is being taught by 1 Corinthians 13? Yeah, yes. So it's, it's teaching the Corinthian church how to love one another. We're learning about love, and in doing so, we're learning about Jesus. We're learning about God. If we want to know what God is like, uh, in many ways, we can look to this chapter. And it's important to remember in epistles like this, these were written, most of Paul's epistles are written to churches, groups of believers. Uh, Not all of them, but most of them are written to groups of believers. So it's easy to apply this to us instead of just me. Um, So we're being taught not just what love is and who God is, but how we should act toward one another, what we should behave uh, like toward one another in our local churches, which is really hard. Uh, If you've been a member of this church or a member of any church for any amount of time, you know how hard it is to act like this toward all your brothers and sisters in this church. There are people who you're like, it is hard for me to be patient for 10 minutes with them, but the Lord calls you to be patient, uh, to endure forever with them, to endure a lifetime, uh, to endure eternity. So this passage is instructing us how we should behave toward one another in the church today. That's its intention. Okay, what about reproof 
Um, what is being rebuked? How can we be rebuked by this passage? Yeah, plug in your name and see. Um, I think the only time back to Dan's point earlier about it being between 12 and 14 with spiritual gifts is that you can possess all manner of spiritual gifts. You can teach well, you can disciple well, yep. you can have a full resume of what you do, but if you lack genuine love, if you lack the ability to show up and just be present with people to engage in a way that isn't necessarily going to earn you anything, then 1 Corinthians 13 is correctly to say you have nothing. Yep. Your whole resume is trash. Yep. Because you lack love. Yep. Yep. Yep, that's right. So it is absolutely a rebuke to those who are puffed up with all their gifts and all their knowledge and yet lack love. And Paul says, you're nothing without it. Um, and it's a rebuke to us, too, who might be tempted to be puffed up. Um, so, yeah, maybe you think you're loving in your relationships with fellow church members, but you're not. Um, you know, this passage can tell you what love is like. You can, you know, measure yourself against it and see in what ways you fall short toward others. Um, you know, maybe you don't believe somebody will ever change. Maybe you're quick to envy. Uh, maybe you're irritable or resentful or arrogant toward others. Maybe you like to see specks in your brother's eyes and refuse to see the log in your own. Uh, I would challenge you that in most passages of Scripture, especially ones that just directly tell us how to live like this one, uh, don't run away from the rebuke of the passage. Uh, we're very quick to skip this step of application. We are quick also to think, how does this passage rebuke that person that I'm mad at? Uh, but I would encourage you, let the passage rebuke you. Let it hit you primarily. Uh, we think a lot of how somebody else needs to change, and we don't, and we might be right, but we can be so slow in letting texts rebuke us personally. Um, and so this is where part of that lesson on heart posture comes in, having the humility to hear a rebuke and hear it about yourself and take it and change, repent. Um, so you can pray for humility before you read a text like this. What about correction? So correction, remember, is more positive. So how is this passage sharpening what you maybe already know uh, about God? Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So the gifts all come by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's the only, the only uh, one who can enable us to love one another like this. Um, so I, other things, maybe you know God is loving, but you don't know exactly what that means. Here's a great sharpening passage to help clarify in your mind what does love look like. It's patient, it endures, it's kind, it's compassionate, it secures an eternity. Uh, finally, what about training in righteousness? How does this passage train us to live godly lives? I've kind of already mentioned some of it, but how does this passage train us to live godly lives? Yeah. 
So you have both positive and negative examples. Be like this. Love is like this. It's not like this. Um, so if this is what God is like, we want to be like God. We should all strive to be these things to one another all the time. We should be kind with one another. We should bear with one another. We should endure to the end with one another. And we should look to a future hope that Christ has secured together, uh, recognizing there are things we disagree on that just don't matter um, in the grand scheme of eternity and God's love for us. So again, that's, that's all great. And you'll notice as we went through it, uh, we applied it both individually and corporately. And epistles especially uh, are, are easy and good to apply corporately. Uh, it's important to remember, don't just think about yourself in application. Think about one another. It's not just me. It's also us. Um, but beyond that, remember, we want to think about that, that third bucket, the non-believer. So how does this passage impact the non-believer? How does it apply to them? Okay, so there's a lot of ways. I know I've been hitting y'all with the questions this morning. Um, there's a lot of ways. One, if this is what God is like, this is what non-believers are not like. So you can't expect a non-believer to act like this. Um, but we have to be really careful there because the Corinthian church right now is actually not like these things as well. The Christians in the church are not like these things. So Christians should be like this, but often we're not. And if you think about it, if we all acted like this toward one another, this would be very evangelistic toward a non-believer. Um, remember, Jesus says they'll know us by our love for one another. Uh, another application that goes along with that, if non-believers see this kind of love in the church, you have to think it would be attractive and an avenue to share the gospel. Uh, and they'd be interested in how it's possible for people to love like this, to bear with one another and endure with one another like this. It is such a good opportunity to share the gospel and share why it's possible for Christians to love like this only by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit. I think another application is, you know, in a culture that has a circular definition for love, love is love. Uh, Christianity provides a real concrete definition of what love is uh, in 1 Corinthians 13. So claims like these, love is patient, love is kind, it endures, it bears with one another, uh, they're not circular, they're not fluffy, uh, they're definite. Love is like this, it's not like this. Uh, that speaks loudly into a culture that um, thinks love is love, that love is whatever they want it to be. Um, God says, no, it's like this. Uh, so again, all we've done is followed a little application map, making sure we understand what the text meant to the original audience and reading in context. Um, we then ask ourselves, how does Christ impact this text, since all of Scripture is about him? Those two steps help us get to how it applies to us, to me, to us, to them, in a much more faithful way. And then, as we get to that final question, how does this apply, um, we ask ourselves application questions that come directly from Paul. Uh, how is this text teaching me, us, them, rebuking, correcting, training for righteousness? Um, and then again, corporately, how is this text teaching, rebuking, correcting, training us for righteousness? And then for the non-believer, how does this text address maybe misconceptions they have about Christianity, 
uh, and call the non-believer to repentance and faith. Do you see how, although this takes work, it is worth it? Because we, we reached a lot of applications that were faithful applications. Do you see how it helps you avoid easy mistakes you can make when you're applying and doing it quickly? Do you see how it allows us to apply this passage to more than you might think when you just read it one time? So we've looked at two passages. We've seen how they apply. Um, and I think the crazy thing is that's two passages of Scripture in a sea of other passages of Scripture. Uh, and the crazy thing is Paul says, remember, all Scripture is profitable for these things. All those other passages apply in every way that these passages do. So some passages, as we acknowledged up front, are easier to apply than others. Some are harder. Um, some Christians are, you know, most, I would say, Christians are united in application. Other passages, faithful Christians disagree on the application of them. But one thing is for certain, and it's that the entire Bible applies. The whole Bible applies. All Scripture is God-breathed, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So I think as we end our time, I think we just need to take a second and meditate on the gift that we've received in God's word and not take that for granted. So you're, you're likely holding in your hands right now a treasure beyond all comparison, and you're just holding it. You're holding a book that applies infinitely. If you open to a random page in that book, that page applies. If you open to a random verse in that book, if you understand it rightly, that verse applies. So we take this for granted, but we hold a book written by the hand of God over thousands of years that is the most relevant book that we have today. It applies to our culture. It applies to our church. It applies to our children. It will apply to our children's children's children. It will continue to apply. It will continue to be the most relevant book that we have. How wonderful a God we serve. Who but our God would give us such a treasure? Who would be so patient with us as we ignore that treasure and all that he has for us in it? So at the end of this class, more than anything, I hope over these six weeks you've come to treasure God's word more. Um, I hope you see more of the depths that it has than you did before we started. I hope you feel more of a desire to read God's word, to search it uh, with all that you can, and I hope you feel equipped with tools to take God's word, read it faithfully, understand it, and apply it to your life. Um, and so one final encouragement as we wrap up, don't do this alone. Um, these tools are helpful, but they're not bulletproof, and we all have limits to our understanding, uh, and, and we have applications that need to be sharpened by one another. Um, and so when you realize how much of the New Testament was written directly to churches and not individuals, um, you start to recognize the importance of community in the Christian life, and especially in interpreting and applying the Bible. So community can be a crucial tool in interpreting your Bible faithfully and helping others do the same. So let me challenge you in that light. Grab a friend and read a book of the Bible together. Practice using these tools with one another. So this friend can be your spouse, a brother, a sister, a group of people even. Uh, pick a book of the Bible, read a chapter or so at a time, walk through these tools that we've learned together, walk through the application roadmap, walk through Paul's application questions, walk through how it applies to the individual, to the church, to the non-believer. Point out to one another things in the text that not everybody sees, right? Sharpen one another. Watch the Spirit work in community as we sharpen one another with the words of God. 
if all of us did this and took that challenge and read the Bible with one another and faithfully applied it, this church would be more sanctified. We would better show the world what the body of Christ looks like. We'd see sin continue to die and our desires for holiness continue to increase. We'd love one another better, bear with one another more, and build each other up in the faith. So, uh, again, these tools are useless. This knowledge is useless, and you wasted your time if you don't take these tools and put them into action um, and be trained for righteousness by God's word. So take what you've learned and use it. Come to God's word humbly, thankfully, reverently, and encounter him in his word. Um, Let's pray, and then somebody with a good voice can start the doxology for us.